0: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons from Lab & Life podcast. I'm your host, Lydia Morrison, and I hope that our podcast offers you some new perspective. Our podcast today focuses on the value of first-hand experience. I'm joined by Aaron Pomerantz, who's currently a PhD candidate in the Integrative Biology Department at UC Berkeley. His lab work focuses on understanding the nanostructures that create the structural color of a butterfly wing but his passion lies in the jungles of South America, where he conducts field research. Hi, Aaron. Thanks so much for being here today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So I've been doing some light, uh, what I would call, online stalking of you in preparation for our meeting.
1: Fantastic. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I have a couple questions. Firstly, would you classify yourself as an entomologist or a molecular biologist?
1: Yeah, I get asked that question, and um, I kind of feel like it's hard to... I kind of feel like it's hard to answer because, yes, I feel like I'm a little bit of both, maybe. But I definitely started my foray into science as an entomologist. I was that little kid who was, like, running around the mud and playing with bugs. And I think part of that was because uh, my mom would garden a lot. And so we had a lot of native plants and animals growing up. Um, We're from in Los Angeles. And... Um, then I uh, went to school for entomology. So I got my undergraduate degree in entomology. I went over and got a master's degree in entomology. But then it started to get a little more involved in molecular science. And uh, in particular, was interested in next-generation sequencing and things like RNA interference at the time. So uh, now, I mean, this is sort of a long-winded answer of saying I feel like a little bit of both. I'm currently a PhD student in the integrative biology department at Berkeley. So i just like to say I'm an integrative biologist now.
0: Okay, I totally get it. It's hard to pigeonhole your kind of uh, curiosity. So, follow-up question. Your social media profiles state that the uh, coolest discoveries are the the ones that you make yourself. So, what does that statement mean to you?
1: Well, when I was working as a field biologist in the Peruvian Amazon, um, it was uh, a really amazing opportunity to just sort of wander around and kind of play Darwin. And uh, in fact, I was working with an ecotourism company who had hired me to be a field biologist. And I said, you know, what's what's my job description? And they were like, whatever you want it to be. So I thought it was a really amazing opportunity to just sort of wander aimlessly. And this gave me the opportunity to just make discoveries of my own. Um, Some of them were finding uh, organisms that were doing things in new ways, describing new life histories. um, And some of them were likely new species. And so at the end of the day, I felt like these might not be groundbreaking things. They're not going to wind up in nature papers. But to me, they were very important. And to me, I felt very excited as a scientist to find these things. So it kind of felt like this discovery of one. And that's sort of why I made my little motto. "is like, I think the coolest discoveries are the ones that you make. These are the things that really excite you.
0: So let's talk about some of your personal discoveries. Can you explain to our listeners um, about your interest in the source of the colors that we perceive in butterfly wings?
1: Definitely. So this all started, again, when I was um, wandering around the rainforest, and there were a couple interesting um, new types of butterflies that I found. Um, One of these was a collaboration with another scientist, and we found there was this butterfly that hung out with ants. And this was sort of bizarre because normally there is no described association between butterflies and ants like this. Mm -hmm. But it even turned out that these butterflies had a wing pattern that looked like the ants.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. And
1: so that got me really interested in wing patterns, mimicry. um, But what was actually the root of these colors and patterns that we see and how there are these amazing mimics that have evolved in nature? You know, these are sort of textbook examples when you take a biology class, right? You'll see these orange butterflies that mimic one another um, because they're toxic. Mm -hmm. Um, But where do these colors actually come from? And I was, um, at the time I was looking into PhD opportunities. I thought it would be, um, advantageous to go back and, and develop a greater skill set, especially with sequencing, um, because I was trying to get in more involved in portable DNA sequencing mm-hmm. and, uh, so I found an opportunity at uh, UC Berkeley. There's a lab, um, Nippon Patel is the advisor, and they were really interested in looking into the development of structural coloration, which we can talk a little bit more about in detail. But this was, um, I thought, a really cool opportunity to dig into this mechanism, this really fundamental question of where does color come from in animals.
0: That's really interesting. So I know pigment color, um, the, the colors that we all think of, is, is light hitting the color, being absorbed, and then the other light being reflected, right? And that sort of absence of light, of specific wavelengths of light results in the color that you see. But how does structural color work?
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. So when white light comes in, if there's a pigment molecule that it hits, that might absorb certain wavelengths. And then whatever reflects back is the color that you see. And um, so exactly right. So those are pigments. But on the other hand, uh, sometimes in nature, there's no pigment involved, but rather light is just interacting with the surface, and then the light is refracting back at some sort of wavelength. And this might not seem very intuitive. I think most people I talk to, they're sort of familiar with pigments, but not so much structural color. But if you've ever looked at, say, a rainbow or light hitting a prism, like on a Pink Floyd poster, you can see you know white light bending into these rainbows because they're breaking down into their different compartment wavelengths. And uh, animals can take advantage of this just like a prism would. And they can do this by producing what are called nanostructures. They're these really highly modified um, bits of, you know, if it's on a bird feather or a butterfly scale, they can modulate, you know, their chitin or some sort of surface. And so when light interacts with that surface, it will come back as the color that you see. It's a really powerful tool that animals can use to make a certain type of color.
0: So how can scientists studying this sort of structural color in organisms, how does that benefit the scientific community at large?
1: Yeah, I for for myself, I thought it was just sort of interesting um, from an evolutionary standpoint. But there are lots of really fascinating uh, applications as well. So for a long, long time, um, dating back, people have looked at butterfly wings and structural color to serve as sort of bioinspiration inspiration for uh, physics principles and uh, mechanical properties. You know, these nanostructures are some things that we don't even know how to replicate. And so there's a lot that we can learn by looking at these animals and trying to figure out how they're producing these nanostructures. And this can have all sorts of really interesting applications when it comes to producing something that, say, you want to be hydrophobic or self-cleaning or maybe produce a certain type of color that doesn't fade. Um, These are really cool properties that um, mechanical engineers have tried to gain their bioinspiration from.
0: So, I want to switch gears a little bit and um, have you tell me a little bit about Field Projects International and specifically about the Genomics in the Jungle event that's going to be taking place um, at the end of July.
1: So, Field Projects International is an organization that I've worked with in the past. Um, they're a nonprofit organization, and they were founded by um, a couple of PhD students. And they were doing a lot of field work, I think, in Peru and in India. And uh, basically spun that into organizing these um, short-form field courses that anyone is really open to register for. So some courses have been more geared towards ecology and botany. I've taught one that was actually a field entomology course. And uh, they're a lot of fun. Uh, it's also a lot of work because you have to not only be a teacher, but also kind of make sure all, everyone is safe and well taken care of for two weeks in the jungle.
0: It's a lot of pressure.
1: Yeah. Make sure nobody wanders off and gets lost or, you know, steps on a venomous snake or anything like that. Um, but overall, these are really fun. And so the motivation for this upcoming course, uh, which we call Genomics in the Jungle, is uh, having a two-week field course, um, doing what we normally would, like collect samples and process data, but also perform all of the necessary downstream molecular analyses. So for instance, we want to extract DNA or RNA, um, do microbiome analyses on primate samples, and also um, plant and animal species identification with DNA barcoding.
0: So... How do you know whether or not you've, you've discovered a new species of something? Like, how quickly do you get that information? And, and then if you think you have, what are your next steps?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, once you have a DNA sequence in hand, what can that tell you in the moment? And uh, it can tell you a lot, so, um, but there are some necessary requirements. Um, identifying species is not always as easy as it may seem. Um, Sometimes we just sort of intuitively know like you can tell that we are humans just based on looking at us or you can tell what a certain bird or common snake species is. But if you're really getting into the details and you want to know something is a new species, you really need to have a good job of all of the other closely related representatives already in hand to compare it to.
0: Mm, Like a rich database.
1: Exactly. Or what we might consider like a reference database um, of all these, at least sequences or maybe also morphological characteristics. This is why a lot of time and effort goes into species identification and building phylogenetic trees that represent the tree of life. So it's no small feat. Um, And sometimes it's challenging even if you have a sequence pack to know if it's a new species or not. Um, There are some cases where, for instance, when we were in Ecuador, I was with some highly trained herpetologists, and uh, it was clear to them, um, based on looking at the morphology of this gecko species, that it was likely new. Um, and with the additional data set of having a DNA sequence and having an existing reference database, it looked pretty clear that this at least had never been in the database before. So it's, it's hard to say for certain that something is just a new species, but you can gather a lot of necessary evidence. And this can be very informative while you're in the field, because you know classically you have to collect samples, transport them back to a lab. Maybe you even have to wait to get permits to ship it internationally to find a sequencer. This can all take weeks or months. Maybe the sample gets lost or degraded. So the ability to actually take your equipment out and sequence it within, say, a 24-hour time span can really have immense applications and is very beneficial.
0: Can you tell us about your lab in a backpack?
1: Oh, totally. Well, I was was first sort of inspired by um, portable technology. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I first started working in the Amazon, we used to have a microscope at the research center that I worked at. But like many things in the rainforest, it gets degraded over time. This particular one actually got wet, and fungal mycelium grew into it. It's
0: probably like a moisture issue.
1: Yeah, totally. And so uh, that's a problem if you're trying to do research in you know, remote places like this. And I went online at the time, and I was searching for portable microscope alternatives, just what was out there. And I had stumbled upon um, a research group at Stanford University. Mm-hmm. They had invented what they called the Foldscope. And this was a $1 origami microscope. And I just thought that was so cool that, you know, people were developing like a paper based microscope and I tried it out. It works really well. It's um, it's really cool. It can magnify like 140 X. You can connect your cell phone to it. And um, and this was also around the time that I, um, I had found Oxford Nanopore Technologies. And so this company had been developing the first ever basically handheld DNA sequencer. So these were all sort of like newly developed tools. This is just a few years ago. And uh, this really lit the spark for me that like, wow, we're getting to this, you know, these technological advancements that are allowing us to take tools out with us into the field. You know, what else is going to change? And um, since then, I've been testing these tools. um, In part, um, what's helped is having uh, grant funding from the National Geographic Society. Um, I also use the mini PCR. And uh, that's a really great little portable thermocycler. And uh, it was more recently that I started to try and get into developing my own tools. And in collaboration with, with the Jacobs Institute for Design Innovation at UC Berkeley, um, I've been getting into 3D printing and prototyping, so I made my first ever um, handheld centrifuge And so this is a 3D printed, it can fit these little column tubes that you you can find in like DNA extraction kits. Uh So by just, you know, pulling and spinning with your hands, you can extract DNA, you don't need an external power source.
0: That's amazing.
1: So um, a lot of things are still, you know, under development and ongoing. But I think it's a really cool time to synthesize all of these little tools and develop your own and put these into a backpack and just go.
0: So what's your, uh, what's your favorite tool in your backpack?
1: I think the, the fact that we have a portable sequencer now is really a game changer. And so the development of the Minion and, and other you know, portable aspects from the sequencer company has been really invaluable for um, doing some of these analyses. So in, you know, a few years ago, we could do, say, like portable PCR. But to actually decode DNA or RNA in real time is just incredible to me. So that, to me, is a really cool game-changing tool. And uh, I can't wait to see what else gets developed in the coming years. It's all moving very quickly.
0: Absolutely. I noticed that you um, have some really stunning photography on your social media feeds. Is that something that you consider sort of part and parcel to your research?
1: Yeah. I I mean, actually, you know, before any of this, um, I was doing photography and uh, especially macro photography. So, you know, using these large lenses that can let you get very close and in high detail um, with small organisms. And uh, this to me was really awesome because you can just make observations, you know, take pictures, take video, um, analyze it in detail. So for me, that was sort of critical in being able to make natural history observations that then led into all these downstream questions. So you don't need any fancy tools to go out and make discoveries. You just need the ability to go out and make observations. You know, that's, Darwin didn't have any portable sequencing tools, but he did have this power of observation that he la- later synthesized.
0: I think that's a great take-home lesson for our listeners that, you know, you don't have to have a fancy microscope. You don't have to have a handheld genetic sequencer um, in order to to really make contributions. And speaking of those um, contributions that you make in the field, can you talk a little bit about how they support conservation efforts?
1: Yeah, Absolutely. It was um, not until I started going down to places like Peru and into the jungles that I started to really notice some of the adverse effects that are going on in the rainforest. So for instance, um, logging and natural resource extractions are really prominent. Um, effects of gold mining are really apparent out there. Um, wildlife trafficking and you know catching like primates and birds that they're selling. So these are all big problems in the rainforest, definitely. And this can impact us on a, on a broader scale because life on our planet really depends on these ecosystems. And, uh, you know, how do we conserve these areas is something that has been a really big question for me and, you know, for lots of other people. How do we protect these areas? And uh, when it comes to portable DNA sequencing, um, and something I said in the write-up for when we were writing up a publication on it, is this isn't designed to be a silver bullet. It's not going to prevent, you know, anything per se. But I think a, a critical aspect of conservation is knowing what's out there. It's very hard to protect an area or establish it as a national park if you can't convince other people to care about it or tell them what's actually out there that's worth protecting. And so to me, the ability to go out and rapidly do biodiversity surveys, incorporate this with DNA sequencing to identify species, this to me can be another powerful tool that can help you in conservation efforts.
0: It's great to see the impact of technology innovations and in field research and how those are being applied to conservation efforts. Do you have any last thoughts for our listeners before we let you go?
1: Oh, definitely. Well, I think no matter you know, what level of scientific background you have or what age you are, I think there's never been a better time to be involved with the sciences, especially biological sciences. There are just so many amazing technological advancements these days, especially with gene sequencing and portable tools. Um, but also with social media and how, you know, we can communicate with broader audiences. Um, But we still face really big challenges today, right? So, you know, deforestation and disease transmission, uh, food shortages, overpopulation. So these are all really big problems um, that we can try and address together. So I think there's never been a better time to be a scientist, and it's a really good time for all of us to work together and try and, you know, tackle these big problems that we face today.
0: Absolutely. It's been such a pleasure having you here today. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you very much.
0: Hopefully you enjoyed listening to this episode of our podcast as much as I enjoyed making it. Be sure to check out the transcript, which contains lots of helpful links to learn more about Aaron's research. And also join us for our next episode when we'll chat with NEB scientist Greg Patton for the second part of our two-episode piece on the polymerase chain reaction, better known as PCR.